I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own Discord channel now where there's chat and things on it. There's Ko-Fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like. There's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are. And of course, Just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year. So thank you once again. I'm going to stop waffling. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of History Hack that is in association with the Great War Group. The Battle of Vimy Ridge has entered Canadian mythology like no other battle that Canada's soldiers have fought. While other battles with Canadian involvement in the First World War may have proved more strategically vital to the overall effort, the battle at Vimy Ridge over the Easter of 1917 has been called the moment Canada became a nation. So on this, the 105th anniversary of the battle, we've welcomed some of Canada's foremost historians to look at it, discuss why it's become such a part of Canadian identity, and most importantly, how that idea has changed and evolved over the years. Now, for regular listeners, you'll know that my first World War knowledge is minimal. So I've brought in a ringer who's not Canadian to help us with this. And I'm delighted to say we have Great War Group trustee, Andrew Locke with us. Lockie, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited. I've got to say, I'm really, really excited about this one. I mean, the company is epic but this is so my wheelhouse those who know me know that uh, early 1917 is the subject of my phd thesis and joining us we have mike bechtold who's an author historian cartographer he specializes in military air really but also the canadian army in normandy northwest europe the canadian corps in the great war brilliant he's got a phd in history and is the author uh, or editor of eight books including Vimy Ridge a Canadian reassessment and he's currently teaching history at Wilfrid Laurier. Carla Jean Stokes is with us who's a photographic historian in the 2015 uh, Carla Jean won the photographic 
Historical Society of Canada thesis prize for her paper, British Official First World War Photographs, 1916 to 1918, arranging and contextualising a collection of prints at the Art Gallery of Ontario, which was later published in Photographic Canadiana. And Dr Tim Cook is the senior historian at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa and the author of 13 books, including the one that is sat in front of me, Vimy, The Battle and the Legend, which was updated just a few years ago. Lovely people, how are you? Doing great. Thanks, uh, Matt and Lockie, for having us here. We're going to do this in sort of a roundtable format. So let's say hello to everybody roundtable. We've heard Mike, so everyone can know the voices. Carla Jean is our furthest away. She's in BC. How, how the devil are you? I am great. Uh, the baby's asleep, and I'm here with you fine gentlemen. So it's going to be a good Thursday. That's, that's what we like to say. The baby's going to wake up about midway through this. I think Absolutely, that's... but her dad is home, so that's her problem. His <laughs> problem, their problem. <laughs> Perfect. And Tim, thank you. We're pleased to hear that Ottawa is returning to some semblance of normality. Yes, it is, Matt. And, and Andrew, thanks for that. Yeah, great to be speaking to you from Ottawa. It's cold, but the occupation has moved on. And uh, the Canadian War Museum, where I'm lucky to uh, work and have worked for 20 years, is open. And uh, it was great to be in there today and to see uh, dozens, perhaps hundreds of people walking through and uh, consuming the history and soaking it up and just uh, wonderful. So uh, great to be with you. So let's get this thing going. So let's actually start pre-war. And t- Tim, we'll start with you. Canada as Canada as an idea. There's, there's a terrible way to, to start this. But the Dominion in Canada itself. By the time we get to Vimy Ridge, the country is really only about 50 years old. So how is it coming to being and, and this road that leads to Vimy? What does that look like for Canadians? Yeah, so, so what is Canada in the summer of 1914, for instance? It's, it's an enormous country. It is uh, roughly the size of what it is today geographically without Newfoundland, of course, which was a separate dominion within the British Empire. Uh, Canada was a dominion within the British Empire, proud of those links, proud of the shared history and culture. Uh, It's a country of around seven and a half million people, British subjects. Canadian citizenship would not be introduced until after the Second World War. Not much of an army, almost no navy. And yet when a war comes in August of 1914, Canadians respond enthusiastically. I've seen it advertised and reported on in in the newspapers, and that's some new scholarship in Canada that's quite interesting. We all know the story of the, the idyllic summer, and then war comes like a storm cloud, and yet really the Canadian newspapers were reporting on the assassination and the gradual mobilization and then the, the march to war as it all unfurled so quickly in late July and early August of 1914. And Canada was a dominion, and so it was automatically at war, but Canadians would choose the extent of that commitment, and it was enormous. Eventually, about 620,000 Canadians would serve. That, again, is from a country of 8 million fighting in the primary fighting force, the Canadian Corps, four divisions strong, and in other formations as well. And it would be, Matt, as you mentioned, it would be a war that would forever change Canada, forever transform Canadians and the country, leaving great trauma and scars, but also propelling the country forward. It's interesting because I I suppose one of the 
I don't know if it's a trope, but I'm going to ask the question, that sort of youthful exuberance that the sort of Canadians brought with them when they arrived in Europe has always been one that's in a lot of the histories I've read has, has been talked about. Is that nature of a, a young country come with a lot of first generation Canadians coming back to, to fight for their father's country? Is that an idea that actually has a bit of weight to it? Or is it something that's sort of rosy, rosy tinted glasses? It has some weight, but uh, the first contingent that went overseas had about 70% British born. And, and only in towards the end of the war is there about a 50% Canadian born. So not only is there a very strong British connection, imperial connection, but many of the Canadian soldiers were what British or Scottish or Irish. We think about 40,000 Americans. So this is a really interesting force. And I think like many other expeditionary forces, that which leaves the soil of a country, in this case, Canada, goes overseas. Of course, it has changed radically. When the force arrives to the Western Front, the first division in February of 1915, the first Titanic battle at Second Ypres in April of 1915, where the Germans unleash chlorine gas for the first time on the Western Front, and then a series of battles that will uh, forge the Canadian fighting experience and shape it. The Canadian Corps formed in September of 1915, and the Canadians were very lucky to have some good commanders Alderson was the first British general to command, but really the Canadian Corps begins to come together under Sir Julian Bing, who's I think many people who will recognize the name, a very fine British general who seemed to understand the Canadians well. He had commanded them in the South African War. He understood that this was a militia force or citizen soldiers for the most part, and not professional soldiers, and that the Canadians carried themselves a little differently. They uh, saw themselves and liked to portray themselves as frontiersmen. They would tell stories. They were born in igloos. Uh, they hunted uh, bears and uh, polar bears from the age of two. Most of that was nonsense, of course. Uh, like uh, most forces, it came from the cities. They went overseas from every community across the country, English Canadians, French Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, New Canadians, all classes, almost all religions, but they were forged overseas, I think, into a, an effective fighting force, which would become the Canadian Corps, which, of course, would fight together for the first time, all four divisions at the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Yeah, I think the, the kind of lead up to the action at Vimy Ridge is, I mean, the Canadian Army fascinates me just with its diversity apart from anything else. I mean, you visit Canadian graves out on the battlefields and there's all sorts of nationalities and different kind of origins of names out there. So, so collecting a force and, and turning it into a, a unified team that goes into action. Uh, at Vimy is quite a thing. The battles that lead up to it, I mean, Second Ypres is very, very famous and the defence against the gas attack. The Battle of the Somme was part of it. It's actually before that as well, isn't there, at Hill 62 for the Canadians. So they have a busy 1916 even before the Somme and then fighting at the Somme itself. So how, how strong was the Canadian Corps going into Vimy Ridge? Yeah, it's a great question, Andrew. And I, I think that there's been quite a lot of scholarship on the evolution of the fighting forces, primarily, you know, British, Australian, Canadian in Canada, Bill Rowling has written on this. I've written on this. My two volume history at the sharp end and shock troops are divided at, at the Somme and, you know, the Canadians stumble and they have growing pains and they suffer a series of defeats in 1916 
Uh, I think the Battle of Montsorel in June of 1916 is probably the classic example where the, the Germans uh, pound them uh, with artillery fire, drive them off a hill, and we know how devastating that was to lose ground. Before that, the Canadians had suffered um, a smaller defeat at the Battle of St. Helois in April of 1916. And then jumping forward, if we think of the fighting on the Somme, the Canadians at the Battle of Corselette on the 15th of September 1916, and some of the listeners will, will know that that's a key date where the introduction of tanks for the first time in the history of warfare, the Canadians have seven tanks that they fight with on the Somme. That's a victory for the Canadians, but then it's a slow, grinding, attritional warfare that will continue for the next two months there. I think we have to be fair that the Canadians did not distinguish themselves on the Somme, but they were coming together. And like the British Expeditionary Force, of which the Canadians were a part of, they were learning from those terrible experiences. And as we must say, they were learning as they clawed their way forward over the bodies of their comrades. And the period after the Somme and before uh, the Battle of Arras, those really critical four or five months in early 1917, especially the Canadians are going through major tactical reforms. Just like in the British forces, the Canadians have studied what the French were doing at Verdun. They have had their own experiences. They realize they need to decentralize command and control at the front. They need to upgun or empower the infantry with better weapons, primarily the Lewis machine gun. The artillery barrage needs to be more effective, and we see more scientific gunnery with the creeping barrage. There are a whole host of reforms that are going throughout the Canadian Corps. But Andrew, I think you said something really interesting. The Canadian Corps, and it's four divisions at this point, so 100,000 soldiers, is a mass and a mess of men, but it begins to come together into this effective fighting force because of good commanders, good staff officers, good officers who have survived the Armageddon of fire, and it begins to come together for them in the months before the Battle of Vimy Ridge. Let's talk about the ridge itself now. Mike, it's difficult to describe without having seen it, so I'm going to come to you to describe to our listeners what Vimy Ridge is like. Why was this ridge such an important location, and why was it so heavily contested? I'll start with a story. And, and the first time I went to Vimy Ridge was in, in grade 12 on a high school trip, a March break trip, London and Paris in nine days. And uh, I, I knew a little military history, but what I didn't know was more embarrassing than what I, I did know. And the bus took us to Vimy on a, a really foggy day. And I knew Vimy was a big battle for Canada. And, and they dropped us off in the, in the parking lot there. And we couldn't see anything. The fog was so thick that we hadn't seen any ridge. We hadn't seen any memorial. And they basically said, go walk that way. So we started walking and we were maybe 50 yards from the, the monument that's there today. And all of a sudden it just appeared out of the mist. And it was almost like a, a religious uh, awakening that there was like angels singing and moonbeam. Anyway, it was a really impressive uh, achievement, but I still didn't know what this Vimy Ridge was because there was no ridge to be seen whatsoever. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that the ridge is not on the Canadian side. It's a very gentle slope that the Canadians attacked up. Um, the ridge is on the back side of it. The Germans were sitting up on top of the ridge and defending the ridge. And the ridge is so important because of what you can see from that position on a, a clear sunny day, you can see many miles into the back of the German position. So they were defending that high ground. But 
from the Canadian perspective, the British perspective, the French before that, there's, there's no really appreciable ridge. Gary Sheffield makes a, a great point that the real importance of the Canadians capturing the ridge wasn't in 1917, but it was in 1918 during the, the German March offensives, that it was such a strong defensive position, especially attacking from the German side, that they didn't even bother to try um, to attack in, in that zone. That gives you a really good idea of the importance of that geography there. You've just, just brought Lockie's question for later. Yeah, I'm just chuckling because that's exactly the question I was going to ask. You know, in terms <laughs> Sorry of the value that. of the position. <laughs> no, great. I mean, okay, so prior to the Canadian cause assault on the 9th of April then, how fiercely was it contested? You mentioned the French beforehand, certainly. Vimy Ridge was fought over many times during the course of the war. Um, the French had tried, the British had tried, and they weren't big offensives like what the uh, the Canadians were doing. But once the Canadians captured it, they held it and it never went back to the Germans. So and I, I don't know that there's any lessons there because the war was very different in, in each phase when the, the French were there in 1915, when the British were trying in 16, and then obviously the Canadians in, in 1917, and each were were very different situations. I don't want to step ahead because there's so much I want to talk about, about the myths of Vimy Ridge and that all plays into that. So I think I'll, I'll leave it there uh, and let the questions guide me rather than hijack this in a, a different direction. I'm sure that's going to happen more than once and probably by me. What we'll do now is change tact a bit and bring Carla Jean. In. By this stage is that as the Canadians arrive in 1917 to, to take their, take their turn almost What's happening with the way the Canadian story is being told? What are people at home being are seeing? What are they? You know, visual mediums are coming much, much more into popular press. What is the press around the Canadian Corps as we head into this moment? By April 1917, the Canadians had had an official photographer on the ground for just about a year. So the first photographer gets there in May of 1916. And it's interesting because... The first photographer is Harry Noble, who's born in Britain and immigrates to Canada around 1899. And he had enlisted in 1914 and went over in that first Canadian contingent. He perfectly fits in that paradigm of 70% of the first Canadian contingent is British born because that's exactly what he is. He fights for about a year. By 1915, he's showing signs of neurasthenia and he's sort of the perfect candidate to be picked out of that environment and becomes the official photographer. And there's a ton more I can say about how that program emerged. But the point I want to make here is that Harry Noble as official photographer, he's actually out of action by August of 1916. And he's replaced by William Ivor Castle, who will be the official photographer during the Battle of Vimy Ridge. And I guess this is a really roundabout way of saying within that first year of having official photography for the Canadians, we have two very different approaches from two very different photographers. So we can't really talk about it in a cohesive way, because I think that what each of those individuals brings to the task is quite unique. So what are people not in France seeing as a result of official photography? I want to echo a few of the little signposts that Tim has brought up. Those first battles in 1915, obviously there's no official photography yet. But what we're seeing is greater Canadian involvement in this armed conflict. And therefore, the Canadian Press Association at home is saying, commensurate to that, we need to have greater involvement of our own journalists being able to tell these stories to the Canadian home front. Obviously, there's really tight press censorship. And then so it's slowly 
peels away a little bit. And then so finally, Sir Max Aitken gets appointed to be Canada's, quote, eyewitness to war in 1915. And this, I said I wasn't going to get into this, but apparently I am. This later will become the Canadian War Records Office. And so, as I said, by spring of 1916, Sir Max Aitken gets approval to have Harry Noble hired as Canada's first official photographer. And then, as I said, by August of 1916, he's suffering the effects of neurasthenia. He heads back home to Port Arthur, Ontario. And then we have William Ivor Castle, and he's a really interesting figure. I'm going to leave it at, I Yeah. If you have more questions, I don't like Mike, I don't want to like bogart the conversation so we can let the questions guide it because I could probably talk for a very long time. I was I was enjoying that. You could have. Yeah, I was going to say, you can't say he's a very interesting figure and then just cut off like that. Can okay, absolutely. Leaving so, us hanging. <laughs> <laughs> those, as I said, those little, little tidbits that Tim had referred to. So 1915, that emergence of the Canadian Corps and how we need to see more Canadian involvement in the press. I mentioned this idea of the effective fighting force. And I really think that the reputation that the Canadians had built by, by this time is because of the visual representations of that effective fighting force. And really it's Max Aitken's ability to get pictures of Canadians everywhere that really solidifies that reputation to the point where other, particularly the British are saying, why does it look like the Canadians are doing everything? So the, the reputation that they're building at the time is really bolstered by that visual representation as a result of the official photography program, but also because Max Aitken is the head of that program. He owns a newspaper and he really has a mind for, I want to be careful when we say propaganda, because we know it means something very different in the First World War, in the sense that this is information that's, that's authorized by government and mil- military authorities, but perhaps it's not as deceptive as other forms of propaganda that we will see since then. So we have that image of the effective fighting force. We also mentioned Canadians on the Somme. Obviously, one of the most famous photographs to come out of that is Ira Castle's photographic series called Over the Top, in which we see four photographs of Canadians bursting from troops. It purports to be photographs taken during the Battle of Corselet, when in fact, much later, it was realized by historians that this is a photograph of soldiers in training. But even still, that photograph became so famous. It's actually a series. I always say one photograph. It's really four. I think of it as one. It went on exhibition in December 1916 in London, and it was a huge sensation. And then it would travel all over the world for the final two years of the war. And along with that, there's this myth that that builds around it where we can track the captions that are written and associated with it in December 1916. And then it's like this really bad game of telephone so that by May of 1918 it's being shown in cities like New York and there's these stories about it like the men burst out and they all died immediately and it's like none of that is associated with that first catalog so it's this really weird thing so the image of Canadians on the Somme is very well documented in this series of photographs we also have Ivor Castle is credited today as being the first first world war photographer to take photographs of tanks in action I don't know if he actually was, but that's how he's credited. And those photographs of tanks taken in November of 1916 were actually purchased by the Daily Mirror for a thousand pounds. So again, there's these all these moments in that first year of the photography program in which the Canadians are really getting their image out there. And again, it's because of these figures that are just making sure that that reputation is being shown visually. I mean, I'm kind of thinking back to what people knew at the time and how hungry for information 
people were and it's just like now isn't it i mean i'm, I'm sort of doom scrolling on a daily basis trying to find out what's going on in eastern europe and yeah i, I can't imagine people are any different let's take it almost to the battle itself because you, a lot of the popular myths which i know we break away from now with the first world war things were very poorly planned men climbed out of trenches charged machine guns i think happily we're, we're at a stage now where most People who take an interest in history know that not to be true, at least. But things had to come on from, say, the start of the last big offensive, didn't they, from the Somme. So let's talk about planning for Vimy and what makes that different from, say, the Somme offensive the previous year, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. There is just a seismic change between the war fighting of even late 1916 and early 1917, as you know from your own research. And I think, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, some of those reforms that come out of the Somme are just absolutely crucial. One of the key figures in the Canadian Corps is Arthur Curry, Major General Arthur Curry, commander of the 1st Division. He was a pre-war militia officer, really a real estate developer. He had a good head for war, a big man. We have his uniform at the Canadian War Museum. It's actually one that I could fit in, unlike most of the soldiers, average height about five foot six or seven. But Curry had a good mind for war and uh, Bing, Sir Julian Bing, the Corps commander, recognized this. And Curry was known as a learner, one who listened to his staff officers, most of whom at this point in the war were British staff officers. And Doug Delaney's written some good stuff uh, on this. Uh, And the Canadians go through these reforms uh, with the infantry, with the artillery, as we talked about, with uh, a a rigorous program of raiding enemy lines. The Canadians carry out 60 raids against the Germans from January to March of 1917. So almost every single night, soldiers are going over the top in these really pre-planned and complicated operations. Some of them, uh, most of them successful, uh, and and they're going there to snatch German prisoners, to gain a sense of the landscape or the battlescape, as Mike has said, uh, a better understanding of how to cross no man's land, but also the coordination of artillery, machine guns, and other aspects. Some of those raids, of course, were also failures as they attempted to integrate new weapons into their attack doctrine, uh, spectacularly so on the 1st of March 1917, where they tried to use poison gas, and it's an absolute failure. So through success, through failure, they are learning uh, to become a more effective force. They are issuing maps. This will warm your heart, Mike, as a cartographer, military cartographer. We have some of these maps at the Canadian War Museum. Some of them are very basic. But it was one of the first times that they had issued in mass uh, maps down to the section level so that if your officers were knocked out, as was the case on the Somme, that the rest of the force could fight their way forward. And uh, we see that throughout the battle. I guess the final point there is that, Andrew, all of this uh, training and development of doctrine and integration of weapon systems and technology, all of that is great. And yet, in the end, we know At 5.30 in the morning, on the 9th of April, 1917, it will come down to uh, about 15,000 Canadian soldiers who are standing in the cold, who are standing in trenches, or some of them in the protective underground dugouts that had been built, waiting for the 983 guns and mortars to fire. And that is the moment, of course, when your training slips away, the muscle memory kicks in, and you go over the top. 
And I think there's lots of uh, lots of historical characters we could talk to about no plan surviving contact. I'll choose Mike Tyson saying plans are great until you get punched in the face. And this is the moment where the Canadian flesh of thousands of men will rise up from those trenches and go over the top. And it is a place where flesh will meet steel. Let's talk about that. We will not necessarily be talking about the wider offensive because there is another history hack episode about the Bell Offensive with a, a one Mr. Andrew Locke getting a bit carried away about a certain French general. But we'll put that in the description. You can go back and listen to this. So, Mike, give us a sort of posit history of that moment that has created such a legacy. Vimy is really tailor-made for the poets and the storytellers because it was a, a successful battle. Canada had captured a ridge that supposedly had never been captured before, an impregnable German defensive position, and it was the blood of Canada from coast to coast or coast to coast to coast that went up those ridges and, and captured it. All four Canadian divisions were fighting together side by side for the very first time in the war, and it's just... It's a great story, but when we published Vimy Ridge, a Canadian reassessment, oh, that's a few years ago in 2007, we got slammed because we were attacking or were said to be attacking Canadian myths. We were saying things like, but it wasn't just a Canadian battle and there were other things going on and, oh, maybe the Canadian capture of Vimy Ridge wasn't the most important thing that happened that day. And uh, those are all true, but it doesn't take away from the battle. I don't think we can ever forget that April 9th, 1917 is the costliest day in, in Canadian military history. We don't know the exact casualties for that day. The casualties are, are generally given over a four-day period, but there was something in the neighborhood of 3,500 Canadians that were killed and, and over 10,000 that were wounded to capture that ridge. So it was a successful battle. They got their job done, but it was a, a costly one as well. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It's sort of a series of strong points that they've got to negotiate their way through. I, I guess just I think Lockie and I were talking about beforehand was it's one of the few places in, in the German lines where strength in depth is sort of minimized because there's a, there's a big ridge on the back end of it. There's not really much depth you can have for it. So how far of an advance are we talking? I would suppose most listeners are used to the Black Adder how big is this map? Well, it's one-to-one scale, sir. You know, how big was the actual advance that we're talking? It, it depends on what part of the front you're on. Looking from, uh, I guess, right to left, it was 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Canadian divisions. 1st Division was on the, the sort of flattest part of the ridge, and they advanced the farthest. 4th Division was given the task of tackling the highest point, point 145 or Hill 145, which is where the, the beautiful Canadian Memorial sits today. 
And they didn't capture their objective the first day. There's a whole bunch of things that were going on because of that. And they had to, to regroup and, and try again the next day when they, they finally carried their objective. So in terms of distance, I, I, I honestly don't know. I'd have to check a map, but no more than a, a, a kilometer, two kilometers. Is that about right, Tim? Uh, in the first division area and first division actually goes about 4,000 yards, I think. Is it that far? Um, Yeah. So it's really quite extensive, but as Mike said, it's flat in places it's downward. The famous Canadian historian Des Morton told me once where a veteran said, you got Vimy wrong because I attacked downward, not up the ridge. And he was on the farthest right. And that just gives you a sense, um, you know, Matt, to come back to your, you know, what was the experience of soldiers here? Well, it's, yeah, it's 15,000 different experiences for those in the first wave, with another 10,000 following behind them, and a, a British brigade attached as well to 2nd Division. But I think Mike is exactly right. The, the high point, Hill 145, was a very well-fortified, staggeringly difficult position held by Prussian soldiers with dozens of machine gun positions, And I think one of the things that has always struck me about Vimy, and Mike and I have talked about this, is it was a near-run thing. I mean, we look back on history. We know know how it turned out. We know what the 9th of April is, but nobody there knew how that day would end. If you were on the 1st Division, 2nd Division, even 3rd Division front, you were looking at victory. But the 4th Division was looking at defeat. It had been stopped cold by concentrated machine gun fire. And really, the position is taken in an amazing story, if you'll permit me about a minute to tell it. It's the 85th Battalion, a unit raised out of Nova Scotia. They were supposed to be a Highlander battalion, but they hadn't ever been given their kilts. They had never gone into battle before. They were a labor battalion behind the lines. They weren't meant to be fighting here, but the 4th Division had thrown in all of their reserves. There was nothing left. And the front is a mess, uh, no continuous trench system. And they decide to send in the 85th. And they go up to uh, what is now the firing line, artillery firing on both sides. It's a bit of a lull in the day. It's late afternoon. At this point, there's been almost uh, 10 or so hours of fierce fighting, uh, as Mike alluded to, thousands of casualties on this day alone. The 85th go into the line, two companies forward, and they're waiting for a barrage to come down. And it's suicide at this point, Andrew, as you know, for an attack to go in without a supporting creeping barrage. And that, of course, is crucial to the Canadian attack earlier in the morning. At the last moment, about 15 minutes before the attack goes in, the divisional commander calls off the barrage. He doesn't know where his own troops are. One of the great problems in, in the war, of course, is the failure of communications. These two companies, raw, untested, They're waiting for the barrage to come down. All the officers are looking at their watches and there's nothing. It's silence. And they look at one another and they wait about 30 seconds and the officers say, we go. And they charge, a two-company bayonet charge. And we think of Vimy Ridge being this massive industrial war of artillery and counter-battery fire. But no, it comes down to two companies of soldiers who charge through The Germans are completely taken by surprise here because they're used to an artillery barrage signaling an attack, but they do come to attention. They begin to cut down the Canadians with concentrated fire and the Canadians charge through them and they capture what is Hill 145 today. The the downward slope was not captured. It had to be captured the next day on the 10th. 
But that's what breaks the back of the Germans. And their whole plan, of course, was to hold the ridge for two or three days to bring forward a number of counterattacking forces and then to counterattack through up the ridge and then to roll up the Canadians. And I think if 145 had not fallen to the Canadians, that was a very vulnerable flank from which the Germans could have launched a counterattack or they could have launched a counterattack from the pimple position, which is a, about a kilometer further to the north. Not to refight the war, we don't have maps here, but it is to say that was a very bloody day for the Canadians. And despite the victory that we know, I think a near run thing and it could have been lost. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think that's a lot of the, the Battle of Arras that's true for as well. We think of it as a great British victory as well, especially on sort of 4th and ninth divisions where they advanced three and a half miles. Tremendous but actually kind of further to the south as well, where they attacked the very northern end of the Hindenburg line. They came unstuck in places as well. So it's a real mixed bag. And as you say, a near run thing. After the capture of the ridge, the Canadian Corps don't get to rest on their laurels all that long either, do they? They join the northern end of that Arras offensive as well. How does that go? The Arras battle is one of the, the great battles of, of the First World War, but we don't really talk about it in the same way as the Somme or, or Passchendaele or the, or the Hundred Days. But uh, the Arras offensive continued well after the 9th of April, uh, right up until early May, and the Canadians were involved throughout. I've written uh, a couple of articles about the, the Canadian capture of Arlou and then Franoy. And those are, are really interesting battles because they are attempts by the, the British command to keep the offensive going with smaller bite and hold attacks. And for the most part, they, they completely fail. There's a whole bunch of reasons they're failing. But in both cases, and I'm not I'm not saying this to say that Canadian troops are better than British troops, because that's not the case in, in any way, shape or form. But the Canadians captured Arlu, they captured Fernoy and they held them. And I, I think it's because they were doing something a little bit different in terms of their tactics and that they recognized that in these battles, and they were doing it at Vimy as well, that there's two battles to be fought. The first is to capture the objective and the second part is to hold it. Because in almost um, all of the the offensives, uh, the Canadian and British troops were advancing, they were capturing their objectives, but the German tactic was that of the immediate counterattack, and they would immediately throw in everything 
uh, but the kitchen sink in a, an attempt to regain it. And more often than not, they would encounter exhausted troops, troops that had given everything they had to capture that position that were running low of ammunition. They hadn't brought the machine guns up or the Lewis guns or wire. And they were often able to, to push the, the attackers right back to, to their starting line. But the, the Canadians, and you can look at their operations order, have it very clearly stated that they needed to have fresh troops that are coming up immediately after the attackers to uh, reinforce the position, to set up Lewis and uh, Vickers machine gun posts, to bring up ammunition, to have fresh troops ready to meet the counterattack. And that's exactly what happened at, at both Arlu and, and Frenoy, and they're really quite remarkable achievements. Carla Jean, how quickly does the news make its way back to Canada? I just pulled out recently some reports from the Victoria Daily Colonist. And the the earliest one I, I saw was, this probably was hot off the press the morning of April 10th. It's really interesting because I know how I read a newspaper, which is going to be left to right. And so the headline on the left reads, Great Spring Drive Begins on Long Front Near Ross. And as we move to the headlines to the right, only then do we see a headline actually saying this is a Canadian thing. So over here, we're talking about the Arras battles. What are the British doing? Obviously, the Canadians are part of the British. And there's just little mentions. At the end of the first paragraph, it reads, the famous Vimy Ridge was carried by Canadians. And again, it's not until we get to the other side of the newspaper that we're seeing a headline saying, like, rah, rah, Canada. I remember I just was rereading it the other day, and my heart kind of sank because there's a few mentions saying casualties are light. And we know that's absolutely not true. And it's, it's just, it was hard to read it, I guess, this week to see how that was sort of packaged for Canadians. In a subsequent paragraph, it says, on either side of the Canadians were the English and the Scottish battalions. And in today's battle, there was glory enough for all. And so that's sort of the tone of that reportage is saying, Vimy wasn't just fought by Canadians. And in fact, this is something we can all kind of be proud of. So that's just one Canadian newspaper. It was also reported on in the Toronto Daily Star as well, and I'm sure all across Canada. Um, Those are just ones that I have examples of. Interestingly, on April 11th, 1917, if we're looking at the news in the UK on the cover of the Daily Mirror, we see that photograph over the top is being used to report on the Battle of Vimy Ridge. So we have this photograph that's taken during training but passed off as a photograph of the Somme now being passed off as a photograph of Vimy Ridge just shows sort of the malleability of that imagery and that's really an an approach to representing war at the time or it it reveals to us the conventions of reportage at the time. I want to point out the fact that these early reports in again the Victoria BC Daily Colonist so similar reporting between April 10th and 12th saying that this is an amazing victory, it's going to go down in our history, a lot of emphasis on how many POWs were caught, and really, really downplaying the number of casualties. So that approach is actually completely reflected in how Ivor Castle photographed the battle. So when we look at that body of work that emerged from it, he took about 150 photographs that we can probably attribute to to those days. I say probably because it's it's very difficult. A lot of the information at the time was stripped away because of censorship and, and some of it's lost now. But those expert photo historians out there doing their best can usually attribute about 150 photographs taken during the battle. And if we tabulate the subjects that were represented in that body of work, again, we see a huge emphasis on the POWs that were captured, the guns that were captured, 
And then a lot less on the casualties. There's maybe four or five photographs showing pictures of the dead. I, I think that's really interesting and significant that we, we see these written reports of a written representation of a battle and a visual one. Ivor Castle has a, a photojournalism background. And then we have like the journalists in Canada have nothing to do with each other other than the fact that they both work in this time. So to me, it really indicates these conventions of wartime reportage that they're both doing it exactly the same way. Looking at the time, we're going to move on to the the legends in a second. But Tim, I just wanted to sort of pick your brain on this because you have this at that point, the high moment of, of Canada's involvement in this war, but at home very quickly, things do start to fall apart. It, it, it's fascinating that on the Western front, you have the Canadian Corps at the fore coming into, say, Passion Down the 100 Days, but at home is probably one of the greatest political crises in the nation's history. You're right, Matt. And we've talked about the cost today, 10,602 casualties over uh, from the 9th to the 14th, but the casualties continued. Soldiers continued to die of their wounds. I've just written a book on medicine in the First World War, which will be out later this year. And it's astonishing the evolution in surgical care and preventative medicine, and much of it similar to today, debates about vaccination and uh, frontline care and being worn down, but the, the losses are really difficult to take and they are published in Canadian newspapers. We begin to see them, I think, Carla, you know, probably three or four days after and you begin to see lists and they have a sense that, you know, even a successful victory on the Western Front means that you're, you're going to start losing soldiers. You always do. But it takes time for that to report back through the various chains of command. It's always amazing that um, it takes weeks to figure out who's still alive and who's a prisoner of war and who's in a hospital somewhere, who was treated somewhere else down the line. But in Canada, the legacy of Vimy, all of the alchemy that comes together, why it becomes the legend, right? The Canadian success, the fact that Vimy was identifiable, as as, uh, Mike said, the fact that the French had tried in the past and been unable to take it. The fact, uh, as Andrew, you know, the British, in fact, advance further on the 9th than the Canadians do. But they're not just capturing more farmers field. They're capturing the ridge that everybody in France knows about. And so there's a bunch of factors that come together. But the dark legacy here are those casualties, Matt, as you as you know. And in Canada, the voluntary recruitment had really dried up by late 1916 and was quite desperate in early 1917. There were calls for conscription. Of course, Britain had brought in conscription. And there was a real sense among English Canada that Canada had to do more and dig deeper But other Canadians didn't feel that. It's often been said that it's French Canada, but there were thousands of French Canadians who served and all kinds of parts of the country are going through this agonizing debate of how much more, how much longer will this conflict go on for? There does not appear to be any end in sight. And so it does lead to conscription, which if uh, your listeners know in Australia was as divisive and not enacted uh, during the war, it was enacted in Canada, but it was a very dark and traumatic event, left lasting scars on the country. And when we talk about the First World War in Canada for I think a long time, we focused more on the emergence of the birth of a nation, which is deeply tied to Vimy as a symbol, as shorthand, really, for the war effort. I think we have a better sense now, certainly I wrote it in my book, Vimy, the Battle and the Legend, that there are many births to Canada. 
you know, Matt, we talked about the first 50 years from 1867 to 1917. And then there's another birth as a new country emerges from the war. And countries are always reinventing themselves. And I think what's interesting is how Vimy over time becomes this shorthand and legend for this emergence of, of a new country. And yet we must always acknowledge the terrible cost, the legacy of the fallen, in the end about 68,000 Canadians and Newfoundlanders who died during the war, those silent cemeteries that are there to remind us along the Western Front and places indeed like Vimy. Okay, so that's a great place to ask this question. Why Vimy? You know, why not the Somme? Why not Passchendaele? Why not Ypres? Why, why not many of the battles that come in 1918? I, I personally would advocate any of the 1918 battles as arguably more impressive feats of arms than Vimy Ridge, possibly. Amiens is a great success, and the battle for, for Boulogne in front of Cambrai is another huge fight. Yeah, I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Why Gallipoli for the Australians? Probably should be the 100 Days or their equivalent MEN as well. This is one of the things I tried to unpack in my book is nations choose battles to represent things. What is it for the Americans? Gettysburg, the Second World War. What do the Russians or the Soviets uh, celebrate and mark? The Great Patriotic War, perhaps others. It becomes a little harder for the French to choose their great battle in the Second World War, at least. But certainly Verdun stands for something very important there. We know that Gallipoli is very similar to Vimy in that Australians talk about that as a birth of the nation. And yet it's a clear cut defeat. <laughs> so why do some countries find meaning in defeat while others find meaning in victory? Mike and I have talked about this in some areas for the Second World War. It's a bit inversed. Uh, in the First World War, Vimy is our great defining moment. How it became that is a very complex story that I tell in my book, and, and we can get into that. But I, I often think about the Second World War as well. And I think the battle there that Canada chose for many years was Dieppe, a defeat. Why is that one haunt us in a way that's very different than Vimy? Anyways, I think it's an interesting discussion that is not just linked to Canada and Vimy. It's for all countries. You know, how do we talk about campaigns and battles and wars? What do they mean to us in terms of a symbol or a legend? How are they constructed over time? Many are linked to memorials. Others rise and fall. There's often an educational element to this. There are the stories that we choose to tell among the many, many stories in the past when most of them are diminished and lost. And yet, ultimately, the story of Vimy is one that emerges from the First World War, tied to the memorializing process after the war, and where Canada built its national memorial, I would argue. It's a more complex story, but I'll leave it there unless, unless that's something you'd like to pursue. I would almost say it's it's very un-Canadian of us to pick Vimy as our national battle to celebrate from the First World War, because whatever Vimy is, it's a, it's a clear-cut success. And Canadians don't like to celebrate our successes. We like to talk about our, our defeats. We like to, to tear down our heroes like Billy Bishop. And here we have Vimy, a uh, clear success as our, our seminal First World War battle. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. The memorial is, well, it, it's spectacular. And I think it's, again, like Mike 
was saying it's to me it's always felt slightly un-Canadian. It's this massive, beautiful white thing on top of a hill. When you see a lot of the other Canadian memorials are quite understated. In your book, Tim, you, you describe Walter Al- Alward's work and the winning of it. I think if we sort of start start there and say 1936, when it's unveiled after quite a torturous battle to, to get it built in the first place, what does that do? Because the, the Canada has been reforming and reshaping its First World War stories for a, a decade and a half by this point. What does the unveiling of this memorial, which very few had seen outside of a model, what does that mean? And especially to the, the mass pilgrimage that, that went to, to see it unveiled by a short-lived British monarch who I'm not sure on this podcast we're allowed to mention his name. Otherwise, Alex will have a go at us. <laughs> I think you're right. I think the Vimy pilgrimage is a critical event to understand the legend of Vimy. About 6,000 Canadian veterans crossed the Atlantic in July of 1936 to bear witness to the unveiling of Walter Allward's majestic memorial. It's a stunning work of art. As Mike has said, as others have said, it seems almost un-Canadian. How it was built and where it was chosen is an interesting story. When Walter Allward's design was chosen, and there was a competition in 1921, it was supposed to go in the Eep Salient, Hill 60, Hill 62 area. Very strange. I remember seeing the contract at the National Archives and thinking, this can't be right. So Vimy was not the first choice. Other people intervened and said it really should be Vimy because of the majestic ridge, as we've talked about, that geography, that warscape. And yet the building of the memorial there was a torturous, as you've said, Matt, and finding the right stone. And it goes through various designs and 1926 or 27, all we're just told he must have the names of 11,285 fallen Canadians who died on French soil on there. And he has the 20 sculptured figures. It's, it's, it's a bit of a mishmash, but it, I think it's a stunning piece of art that works. And that is the National uh, Memorial for Canada. And yet it's strange. It is a national memorial on a particular battle site. And Andrew, as you said, it, we could have chosen MEN or we could have chosen Second Deep, which in fact, for many years was a primary battle that many Canadians knew. But when it was put on Vimy Ridge, you see the battle melding to the memorial. And I would argue from there, we begin to move forward uh, and really to have the solidifying idea of Vimy and what Vimy stands for. And it stands for the entire Canadian war effort. And yet it's also a memorial that is deeply seeped in grief and loss and mourning. And there are all kinds of pieces to it. But I don't think you can separate the battle from the memorial from the warscape. And these three key components come together and become an anchor in the memory that is always there. And Vimy hasn't always been a story that has resonated with Canadians. Like in Britain, we ignored the First World War after the Second World War in the 50s and 60s and rediscovered it in the 1960s and then largely forgot about it again in the 70s and 80s. And so there's a cycle there. But Vimy has always been waiting for us, I think, as a quiet, silent ambassador. It's a beautiful thing. It almost 
it departs from the rest of the British Empire's memorials out there, which are impressive, to be sure. I mean, tea at Val is a blooming great thing. Beautiful, it is not. But, yeah, but Oldwood's sculptures really do inspire as much as anything else. How was this scene back home, Carla Jean? One thing I don't know is the, is the Canadian reaction at home. You know what? I don't have an answer to that either. <laughs> I want to point to a few things. While we were talking about whether or not we think the memorial is Canadian because it's gigantic, back in July of 1917 in London, Castle and the Canadian War Records Office organized a photo exhibition and on display was a photograph called The Taking of Vimy Ridge. It was something like 11 by 20 feet. It was gigantic, printed over five different panels and advertised as the largest photograph in the world. So here we're seeing these little, little tidbits of this, even during the wars, that Canada's representation of itself is in fact over the top. But if we fast forward to the early 1930s, what we're seeing are, are these anti-war protests emerging, particularly in London. Um, and the reason why I even know about that is because that's where Castle is at the time. In fact, in 1934, he helps publish an anti-war photo book. And the centerpiece of that book is the taking of Vimy Ridge, the photograph. But he doesn't put his name on the photo. He presents it with a completely different caption. So now it's that same image yet again, like these images are popping up over and over again, but they're being used to serve these different purposes. And so now it's framed in this very anti-war kind of like, ugh, look at this, this slog that these people went through. And it's this whole like feeding into that lions led by donkeys narrative that I think was probably quite popular at the time. So I guess all I wanted to say about that is that it's so interesting to me that in the early 1930s in this lead up to the pilgrimage to Vimy, we're at the same time seeing people like Castle really engaging these anti-war things. What's also going on in Canada at the time is in 1934, Canadian newspapers finally get access to pretty much all of the Canadian official First World War photographs because now it's easy to wire photos and it hadn't been during the war. The Winnipeg Free Press and the Toronto Daily Star, they both run hundreds of those photographs in their newspapers in the first months of 1934. So they're publishing the photos. We're seeing, again, that book that Castle put out, Covenants with Death in 1934. And it's all sort of circling around the same kind of what were we doing so they're they're really reframing those photographs to serve their purposes of really questioning the war and I don't really have a big thing to comment on that other than if we're thinking about war and memory and, and how it just shifts through time I don't know it's an interesting thing <laughs> I guess that's all I have to say about that but other than that I don't really know a ton about what was going on with the pilgrimage in Canada, other than the fact that we want to think about if 6,000 people went over to Vimy, how many people did not go to Vimy and what did it mean to them that they still didn't get to go overseas? They didn't have that closure to go visit the graves of their loved ones. And, and I think that's a really interesting question. I think that there might be some emerging scholarship on that. I'm excited to see what comes out of it. I'm sure Tim probably does know. I have a question, if I may. Okay. I was just reading an article that Dr. Tim Cook wrote about the pilgrimage and he has some photographs of the ephemera. So there were souvenirs that were given out at the time. And I have a question for Tim and Mike. I think we all own Vimy 2017 souvenirs. And I'm wondering if you still have them and if you ever opened them or if they're still in their packaging. You're right, Carla, that there was a, a great number of souvenirs. There was an official history published 
My wife is a, an archivist and historian. She's written about Salute to Valor, which is actually a film that was produced about the Vimy pilgrimage. There were medals. It was a live radio broadcast from Vimy uh, back to Canada on the precursor to CBC, uh, you know, our equivalent of BBC. So it was a really big event. And, and having the king there as well to unveil the memorial made it an empire-wide event, uh, just an absolutely epic and important point in the way station, I suppose, in understanding the emerging idea of Vimy. And certainly the Second World War, Mike could probably speak to this, when Vimy is overrun, it continues to have a life and a story of its own. Just to come back to your point, Carla, yeah, I was at Vimy in 2017 with 25,000 Canadians, and it was an astonishing thing to be a part of. I, I was there as the on-air historian, but just to, to see 25,000 Canadians come together thousands of kilometers away from Canada was remarkable. And there were t-shirts and hats and signs and people held up stories about their descendants, and it was really quite something to be a part of. It's got something when you're there. You know, all, all the memorials do. There's always a, a special feeling when you're there, but I've always thought Vimy has something. And that's sort of spread out. We're, we're not going to spend long on this, but Mike, Vimy had some interesting visitors during the Second World War. It survived intact, which was quite quite something. But I guess it's always kind of been a, a, a European tourist draw. Who were some of those Europeans, one in particular? Well, I, I think, Matt, you're referring to a certain A.H., a corporal who was fighting on the, the Western Front at the time and may or may not have been at the uh, the Vimy battle. But when the Germans went on the offensive in, in 1940 and, and captured large swaths of France, they found the, the French memorials to the, the First World War. And many of them were memorials that celebrated the victory, that talked about vanquishing the dastardly foe and, and were very martial in nature. And they smashed a lot of those. When uh, Hitler came to, to France, one of the places he went was was Vimy Ridge, and there's photos of him uh, walking to or from the the memorial, and uh, it, it's it's remarkable that they didn't do anything because, of course, it's a memorial to Canada's participation in the First World War, the victory over the Germans, but it's a memorial to peace. And if you look at the the figures, the the statues on it, the the central figure is this oversized figure of a, a woman mourning her dead. Canada bereft is the official name, or Mother Canada mourning her sons is the unofficial name. And the whole spirit of the memorial is not a symbol of the victory, but it, it's almost an ode to the loss, an ode to the the peace, the the sacrifice, the the terrible cost. And the Germans recognize that and they they protected it they didn't smash it like they did a lot of the the french memorials i've approached this next section carefully because we don't want to get into tim's other book because i want to have him back to talk about that but post the second world war canada canada becomes a very interesting very interesting place for the the sort of the wealth generation that's going on the, the boom in the 50s but its outlook is very much forward so how does Vimy fit into the new Canada as we get into the 50s and beyond? And I'm going to 
throw this in as well. Where does birth of a nation come in? Because basically from the Second World War on, that idea pops up quite loudly from time to time. I was wondering if we want to discuss that. What is Canada post-Second World War? I'm going to jump in here before you, Tim, and I'll, I'll throw it to you in a second. But I, I want to start by saying that Tim's book on Vimy is perhaps one of the most brilliant books in Canadian history that I've read. It's two pieces. The first part is a, a history of the battle, one of the, the best histories of the battle you'll read. But the second part on, on the legend is a history of Canada as it's seen through the lens of Vimy Ridge. I, I, I can't tell you how much I learned from that part of the book that I never even thought about. And uh, Tim has looked at the development of Canada as it's been reflected, as it's been represented in our understanding, our, our telling the tales of, of Vimy. And it's, it's really, really fascinating. So if you haven't read that, you need to go and get that. So I'll, I'll throw it to Tim with that uh, little bit of a, an intro on that. Thanks, Mike. And I think there's a lot of ways to talk about this, Matt. But, you know, Carla and Mike and I, we grew up in a country that very much was proud of its peacekeeping traditions. And I think still is proud of that. Although I think the the war in Afghanistan has shaken a bit of the perception that Canada is a nation of peacekeepers or the peaceable kingdom, as it used to be called. And then for anyone who has taught military history or read it in this country, you see a country that has been shaped by war, fundamentally shaped. Indigenous warfare shaped the country before it was Canada, before Europeans arrived. The very fate of the nation decided in the Seven Years' War when we became a British nation and, and no longer New France. Wars of survival against the United States. Um, and then the 20th century, which is... If you're in the first half of the 20th century, it looks like the South African War from 1899 to 1902, the First World War from 1914 to 1918, dealing with that war, the Depression, and then the Second World War from 39 to 45, and the Korean War from 1950 to 53. That's not a country of peacekeepers. And I think, again, it comes down to what are the stories we tell? How do we define ourselves? One of the defining questions of Canada is how we see ourselves in comparison to the Americans, I think. And I think that's where we see the diminishment of the military history story. And I don't think Carla or Mike or I would say, oh, you only need to understand military history to understand Canada. That's just not true. And yet to try to understand the ebb and flow of the country, its evolution over time, its many transformations, you simply need to understand warfare in the 20th century and how it profoundly shaped us. And I think maybe what's really interesting about Vimy is how it became that symbol and that idea of the birth of the nation. And it, it really isn't until the 1960s where we see that phrase. And I try to unpack this in, in my book. It's given by Lester B. Pearson, the prime minister, most vocally, although there are others who talk about it. And I, I don't think it means that Canada was somehow born at Vimy, because we were a country, Matt, as, as you've noted, 50 years before that. I think what it means is that the war transformed Canada, just as it transformed Britain, just as it transformed Australia, uh, just as it transformed France and other countries, Germany, of course, United States. Wars do that. And I think what we have been talking about today is a battle, which is separate from the memorial, which is separate from the warscape, and yet they all come together along with Carla's great discussion about the visual imagery. 
And this comes together to create an idea or a legend, I would say. And I think what's neat about Vimy is that we continually return to it. Each new generation comes back to it. And it doesn't always mean the same thing. We know that. Dunkirk doesn't mean the same thing to you, uh, Matt and Andrew, as it did to your parents, as it did to your parents' parents. And yet these things still have a resonance uh, with us. And I think that is one way to think about Vimy. And in a final thought, that it remains an important martial symbol in Canada that, as Mike said, doesn't have a lot of these symbols and doesn't see itself as a warrior nation. And I'm not suggesting it is, but I would suggest that we have a lot of military history that informs who we are uh, today. And one of those key stories is that of Vimy. Well, I think you've you've just about answered the the sort of final question that I was going to ask, which I think maybe I, as the token Brit, get to ask in a way that others wouldn't. And also with an awareness that the slide I put up for my high school kids on their First World War course today was titled The First World War, Who Cares? But Vimy, does it still matter? And I guess we'll go to, to Mike and Carla Jean on this. Does it still matter? I think it matters to a lot of people. Where I live, actually, in the Okanagan, there's just a private citizen who lobbied to have his alleyway by his house renamed Vimy Lane. And he had somebody paint a mural on it. And he had a little bit in the newspaper saying, this is the birth of a nation. And it just drives me crazy. (laughs) So it, it can make, I think, some historians really want to pull their hair out a little bit. Because on the one hand, we do have people where it is First World War, who cares? And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are those people that care so much and their heart is in the right place, but perhaps they haven't quite done their homework. And, and that could be difficult. It means such different things to all the different people. And Tim said this, like 15,000 people stormed the ridge. That's 15,000 different wars that were fought that day. And that has persisted. And now there's like, you know, 36 million different views on Canadian history that persist. And uh, it's such a it's an ephemeral thing. It's hard to really latch onto and really understand what it means. But I think that's why it's incredibly fascinating. Yeah, and and I, I totally agree with Carla Jean and and with what Tim has said. Vimy's remains, and I'm sure will remain for a long time, an important symbol for Canada. I mean, if you ask uh, an average Canadian about the First World War, Vimy is probably something that will come to mind if they know anything. It's been featured on our our money. It was on the $20 bill for a long time. It was on uh, the Toonie. It has a, a strong resonance. There, there's a lot there. It's, it's a great symbol. It's a great story in many ways. And I'll, I'll use Tim's phrase. It's shorthand for the wider Canadian experience in, in the First World War. Maybe Vimy itself isn't the the victory that some people see it as. Um, maybe it's not the Canadian victory that that somebody sees it as. I mean, so many Canadian nationalists like to talk about the Canadians at Vimy, like we were there by ourselves and we were the supermen that won the war that day on the ridge. And, and, and nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, the attack on Vimy Ridge was in, in many ways a diversionary attack for the main British assault at Arras. And the the victory didn't change the course of the war, but that doesn't take anything away from the achievement that day. 
but it, it all needs to be viewed in, in context. The Canadians couldn't have done what they did without British support, British artillery, British supply services, British commanders and, and staff officers. And it, it was a coalition victory and, and we have to make sure that doesn't get lost. But in terms of the Canadian story writ large from the First World War, it, it's a great a great way of, of getting at that story about showing the volunteers from across the country that uh, had probably never met or would have never had a chance to meet uh, a lad from uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia, or somebody from Victoria, BC. All of a sudden, they're all there in this one spot, working together, fighting together, dying together in a, in a common goal. And, and like Tim says, it changed the country in a lot of ways, most of them positive. And, and I think that's what we need to take from Vimy. If I can just toss in like my two cents, <laughs> I want to just add on to what Mike has just said that Canadians at Vimy were photographed by a British guy and they were shown primarily in the British press and on exhibition in London. And take from that what you will, but I think that just to add to what Mike has just said, I think that's really interesting. And commanded by a British officer, which tends to get sort of pushed out of the way. I think that's a fantastic place to, to wrap up. I cannot thank you all enough for this. This is one of those subjects which we thought it'd be an hour. We busted that. And now Mike's got kids to pick up and everyone's got places to be. There's babies crying quietly in the background and Tim has a museum to run. So Carly Jean, Tim, Mike, this has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Just to echo that, it's a, it's a podcast I've been looking forward to for some time and did not disappoint. So thank you, all three of you. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.